0: Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco. Been one of those mornings, Dan. Wasn't sure I was going to make it. Kid wasn't feeling good. And You had some stuff going on. So anyway, here's my co-host. How are you?
1: I think, I think my name is Dan Miller, and I'm professor of religion and social thought at Landmark College. But as you say, it's been one of those days where like everything's thrown off and I kind of don't know what day it is or who I am, so I'm, I'm glad that you're here and everybody can buckle in for the, uh, the smooth ride ahead for the next hour or so.
0: Yeah, I am going to get in the car after this and drive three hours south to San Luis Obispo to give a talk at Cal Poly, which I'm really excited about, but I'm wearing our Swag Come and Take It shirt with the free little library in there because I gave a radio interview earlier this week in San Luis Obispo, and uh, let's just say a lot of conservative people seem to be upset given the calls that came in. I'm probably going to wear this shirt while I give my talk, just because that's how I roll. You know what I mean? Just, if we got people coming to the talk to be, I don't know, contrarian, then they'll get to see our shirt. So that's how it goes. All right. We're going to start today in Texas, and then we're going to go over to Florida. And then we're going to talk about the Supreme Court, which we have not talked about yet. And there's like a million things to talk about the Supreme Court. And then at the end, we'll get to the Proud Boys as well. So i uh, going to talk about Texas, and basically, what's happened very quickly and very rapidly is a movement to get the Ten Commandments posted in classrooms. And this, of course, is an infringement on religious freedom. So I'm just going to talk stop right now and say we have a new series on religious freedom called "One Nation, All Beliefs." The first episode is on our feed right now, and we did it with Americans United. And there's a whole separate feed, like you can hit subscribe on episodes related to religious freedom. And we have trans pastors, queer black ministers, uh, secular rabbis, student organizers, all talking about religious freedoms. You should check that out now. And uh, like I said, the first episode is in our feed and anywhere you get podcasts, search for One Nation All Beliefs and you'll find that. So Dan, I'm gonna stop and just play a clip. This is from, this is from uh, Texas. It's from the Texas state legislature. There's a bill from the Senate that was sent over to the house and it, it was up for debate in, in the house. And James Tallerico, who is a state rep there, really grilled down on the on the bill. So this is him grilling the sponsor of the bill. And the part of this you're going to hear is really about parental rights. But I'm going to post the the whole clip in the show notes. It's 12 minutes, and I'm not going to lie, friends, it's 12 minutes that is worth your time today. So go check that out later. But here's two minutes of of Talarico talking about parental rights and why having the Ten Commandments in a classroom was is unconstitutional and un American.
2: Tell me about because every time on this committee um, that we try to teach students values like empathy or kindness, we're told we can't because that's the parent's role. Every time on this committee that we try to teach basic sex education to keep our kids safe, we're told that's the parent's role. But now you're putting religious commandments, literal commandments in our classrooms, and you're saying that's the state's role why is that not the parent's role
3: that that's really an interesting rabbit trail that you've gone on with that Uh, because really what we're talking about here is a historical foundational document to our nation's education history and our judicial history And, and i those other things are great and interesting but they're not foundational to us educationally and judicially
2: would you be comfortable with adding language to receive uh, parental consent from all the parents of students in the classroom before putting it up
3: i I would not i am again going to keep it clean as it
2: came over so you don't want parental consent when it comes to students receiving religious commandments
3: i don't believe that again i think that these are foundational to 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 being a good, to being a good citizen, and being a good member of a classroom, and and I know that our teachers are more and more and more having to fight for um, classroom management over the behavior of students, and I don't think that these commandments would, uh, in any way, I think these commandments would help with that, with that classroom management need.
0: I just. All right. So there's so many things here, Dan, that I I just want to make sure we get into. One is we have been covering school stuff for uh, over a year now. It's all over the news. It's all over the country. It's a mess. It's honestly one of the scariest things I think happening in the country right now. One of the things, Dan, that we hear all the time, parental rights, parental rights, parental rights. I want to make sure that I have a say in what my kid reads and what's going on in the classroom and no woke propaganda, no ideology, right? And then Rico asked, "Well okay, shouldn't this be a matter of, of of parental rights? I mean, wouldn't you want your kid to have to have a permission slip if they're gonna have religious ideology posted in their classroom?" And the answer is simply no, and it's silence and it's like also befuddlement, right like uh I'm not sure deep rabbit hole and the the thing that continues to be called back on in order to justify placing the Ten Commandments in the classroom is uh, the idea that this is foundational to American history. And if you listen to the rest of the clip, Tallarico does a great job and says, well, if this is foundational to American history, why don't we have other things that are foundational to American history? Why don't we add those to the bill right now? You know, Why don't we add things like Hammurabi's Code or the Magna Carta? Why don't we add things that are also foundational? We could have, I don't know, uh, Frederick Douglass, right? And his writing about how the 4th of July is not the same for an enslaved person as it is for everyone else. I mean, there's a lot of quote unquote foundational things to our history, right, Dan? But that that never clicks here. It never clicks at all. So parental rights is out. The idea that this is based on history and it's not about religious indoctrination at all uh, is a hard claim to make when this is the only one you want to put in. And finally, and this is in the clip as well, and I'll throw it to you after this, Dan, is Talarico walks through how the legislature itself doesn't obey the Ten Commandments. And one of the most damning, if you if you all watch the clip, is he's like, so one of the Ten Commandments is do not kill. And yet this legislature refuses to outlaw the death penalty. And it's like befuddlement and then the 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 like the the retort to something about the translation from the original text and how it says this and right. And Talarico's like, This legislature is willing to have state-sanctioned killing, and you want to put up commandments for our kids that says, do not murder. That seems like a problem. He also walks through how they sometimes meet on the Sabbath, on Saturday, which is the Sabbath in the original version, the Ten Commandments, and uh, it's just a blatant contradiction, right? He finally says, and this is a point I appreciate, Dan, and I'll throw it to you after this, that he says, look, I'm a devout Christian. I'm saying this to you as somebody who seeks to follow Jesus and the 10 commandments. This is un American for all the reasons I've just talked about. And it's also un Christian that you are ramming down uh, the throats of all school children, uh, a set of commandments that is particular to one Christian tradition, uh, Jewish tradition as well. W- isn't it God's job to convert people and to spread his message. Why do we need this? And what he, he turns the tide on her and he says, This feels like an idol to me. It feels like you're making an idol out of this rather than following the words of Christ. I think it's a fascinating line of argumentation. I think he did a great job bringing out every last aspect of why this is a problem. And one more I'm sorry, I'm on a roll, but one more I'll mention is just he mentions Hindu students and he mentions Buddhist students. He mentions students that are not Christian. And there are Hindu and Buddhist students in Texas. We, we talk all the time, don't talk about deep red Texas. Yes, it, it, the elections go that way, but there are people of all stripes and worldviews and backgrounds in Texas. If you're a Hindu kid and you show up and the 10 commandments are there in your classroom, what does that tell you about what you're supposed to be? What it means to be a real good citizen of your classroom, a real good citizen of the country, a real good citizen of your school or your community. What if it says in the first commandment, love the Lord your God, there's only one God. And you're a Hindu who says, well, actually, I think there's a lot of gods. Or if you're a Buddhist who says, I don't think there's any God. Or you're a secular person who's like, yeah, I don't think there's any God either. This is all basic, right, Dan? We all know this, but it's really good to bring it out in the open and to have the language ready to point out why it's so un-American and so unconstitutional. I'll throw it to you. What are your thoughts?
1: So a lot, a lot of the same thoughts as you. And it, it was, it's a great takedown, as you say, just kind of point by point and a great takedown to take what I think are really, really substantive points that were clearly well, like well suited for a regular conversation. If if people if people want to have like the, the Uncle Ron rehearsal, like sort of practice, like that's that's how you do it. So a number of things, one of the things I've brought up before is if I want to put on my, hey, I'm from a traditional Baptist background and the history piece of this again, and I, I say this. And I know some people know it, and they're probably like Dan. You say this all the time, but I say it to enough people in enough contexts, enough students, and others who are shocked by it. That the reason why we have what Thomas Jefferson called a wall of separation was partly because of Baptists in America who wanted religious freedom, and they meant things like not having state-sanctioned enforcement of religious views. They didn't just mean religion not telling, or excuse me, the state not telling religion what to do. They meant religion not being able to tell the state what to do. And the reason, the reasons are many. The reasons are their historical background and stuff. But here's the sort of theological piece. And I think he sort of touched on that is I've talked about this in the the it's in the code series. One of the pieces of rhetoric we hear all the time from Christian nationalists, other Christian conservatives, and others is this kind of triumphalist, we're not afraid of anything. God is all powerful. You know what? And yet everything they do is have this like sort of constant state of fear. And one of the theological arguments behind this was whatever God is, if God is what we as Christians think God is, God doesn't need our help to win converts, right? God will do that. If God is omnipotent and all-knowing and all the omnis that people have, it doesn't need human laws, doesn't need human persuasion, doesn't need the state to come along and try to coerce people into particular beliefs and so forth. So this is the conversation I've had with people before is that to me, is this is a pretty insecure God uh, that they worship. And it may not be productive, but if you really want to get under under somebody's skin coming at it this way, try out that line. When they have this this vision of this omnipotent kind of hyper-masculine God, you're like, doesn't seem to be really good at much because he needs legislatures in like Idaho and Texas and Florida and places like that to do everything. So I mean, that, that that's sort of one piece of it. As you As you say, as the clip showed, taking out the sort of historical, but I think also the theological heart of it. And I think also this, this myth that somehow or another, the Ten Commandments, like, like all all American laws are really expressions of the Ten Commandments in some way. It's just silly. Uh, there are not lots of laws about honoring parents or, you know, lots of things in the Hebrew Bible. But the the line about killing is great. I think the Sabbath observance one is another one that's really important. Historians and constitutional law experts, Andrew Seidel, uh, Seidel, who we talk to a lot, good friend of the show, will do this. It's just, it's just not true. It is just simply religious indoctrination. The last point for me is when they talk about parental rights and stuff. When you bring up that issue about what about parents who don't believe in this, and they're they're sort of, it's like they're at a complete loss of how to sort of compute with that. It's because like so many other things in Christian nationalism, it's not really about parents. It's about the right kind of parents. It's about Christian parents. It's about white Christian parents, in particular, who should be able to enforce white Christian values as a kind of norm. And so there is neither a willingness or, I think, an ability to even conceive of, as you say, the parents of the Hindu student or the Buddhist student or the secular parents or the the, the card-carrying Christian parents who say, I think God's big enough and tough enough and whatever, that if God's going to win people over, God's going to win people over and I don't need the school to do it for me. So yeah, just a lot of the same thoughts. Encourage people to listen to the clip because it is, it's it's a great kind of point by point takedown, which again, reveals what's really going on here, right? the Maybe the last point, I think I've had three last points, but the last point is as people ask us oftentimes, why argue? Why do the fact checking if that's not really what changes things and so forth? I think there is value to bringing out into the open what is really going on. And this does that.
0: Yeah. And I think I think there's a, a difference between like you are citing statistics from the Daily Wire. I'm citing statistics from the New York Times. Like that's one game. Another game is, is basically what Telerico is doing here, which is drawing out the logic of an argument and showing how... On logical terms, according to certain principles like separation of church and state, and so on, uh, that this doesn't make any sense. And I think that's why this is so effective. He's not—he's not just saying fifty percent versus you said twelve percent, and you have your source and I have my source. So I think that's there. Uh,
1: there's just one, a- one last—sorry, one last point on that—that that occurs to me when people talk about arguments and rhetorical strategies. One that they'll talk about was called internal critique, right? Which is sort of. You criticize something from within the perspective of the person advancing it, and that's another piece that's here and that's really effective is to say things like, isn't this idolatry, right? Are you elevating this above God? If you say, and your theology says that for one to really be a Christian, you have to to freely, willfully choose to make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, has to be this personal individual decision and so forth, that rules out Compulsion in that decision, so that's another piece of it as well that I think I can be that can be really effective is when you can enter into somebody else's framework, and then show how the argument doesn't work from within their own sets of premises, and that that's another piece of what he's doing.
0: Well, and I used to do this all the time. People would come at me on like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and they would they would use all this Christian language, evangelical language, and I would like I speak fluent evangelical as Dan, so do you, and so I would just use all of their words and concepts and. Phrases against them, and then at the end, my last comment would be, "Look, it's very clear your relationship with God isn't going well." I'm going to pray for you, and they would they would just melt down at that point. Just no, and then it became, "No, I'm going to pray for you," and I'd be like, "No, no, I'm praying for you," and then I'd be like, "No, I'm praying for you." And I'd be like, "Well, I'm praying already, so what are you? You're typing. I'm praying." It was fun. It was it was fun. I don't know if it changed any hearts and minds, but it, it was fun for me. All right, I want to make one more point about this. Uh, let me give you a quote. We think there can be a restoration of faith in America. And we think getting 10 commandments on these walls is a great way to do that. That's former state representative, Matt Krause. We think we can really set a trend for the rest of the country. This, this scares me for a number of reasons, but it's, there's one that may not be apparent uh, on first reading. And that is this, Dan, you mentioned how this is based on fear. It's an insecure God and an insecure people. And they're trying everything they can to feel safe and protected. And so they're like, yeah, let's get the Ten Commandments up there. All right. Well, all right, we got the Ten Commandments. Nothing's changing. Still got school shootings and this and that, and people are still gay. Uh, What should we do? All right, let's have prayer now. Let's do prayer in school. All right, we're going to have 15 minutes of prayer. And they're always looking to scratch the itch of safety and security. And they're not going to find it. Putting the Ten Commandments up is not gonna do it, it's not gonna scratch the itch. So then they're gonna turn to prayer. Then they're gonna turn to this. That, right? And what scares me, Dan, is that until you recognize that this is a fear-based, sad attempt to secure something in, in a way that is not effective and not constitutional and not in many ways humane, you're not gonna back off from the strategy. So you're gonna keep going. That's what scares me. It's one thing to put the Ten Commandments up. I think it's unconstitutional. And yes, I think it's terrible if a Hindu student, a secular student, whatever, has to walk in and have that on their classroom and and basically think I'm a second-class citizen or I'm not doing something correctly, okay? Or a second grader has to go home and ask their mom, why why is that there, mom? How come we don't obey the Ten Commandments? Jeff and Jennifer at school say that's what you're supposed to do. That's terrible. There's something behind it that might even be more tragic, which is the continual, like, escalation of the tactic to something that just gets really dangerous and really scary. And it's not like we're not seeing that already in attacks on trans kids and and so on. So, all right, let's leave that there. Let's take a break and come back and talk about, we we skipped Florida last week. So now we got to just catch up and there's a lot. So we'll be right back. All right, Dan Miller, I'm starting to think that you're one of those people from the Northeast. Like my, my wife is from Massachusetts and like whole, like her people from her town, when they get old, they all move to the same part of Florida. So like, if you go to one part of Florida, you just see everyone from her town, but they're just in Florida. I'm starting to think you're one of those guys who lives in the Northeast. It's like cold all the time and you just wish you were in Florida. And so you're always, you're our Florida desk man. Like whenever we need to know about Florida, you're the guy. Cause you, you live there like all the other folks who are from the Northeast and getting on planes all the time
1: to Fort Myers and Tallahassee and Pensacola. Is that fair? I don't know. I think the real mission is to try to make Florida purple again before like my retirement age. So before I flee there for winter, we we need to try to kind of win it back. But yeah, I, I am sort of like I, I feel like the the straight white American Jesus, Florida desk. We were sharing with folks the, the newsletter with all the links and stuff. And people were probably like everything that Dan Miller sends is about uh, Governor DeSantis. And it's kind of true. But but just to, to contextually right, to be serious about Florida, we've we've talked about places like Florida. In Texas, but I think Florida preeminently as significant, not because it's Florida, not because it's a state that I think some people still somehow think is a swing state, I think it's very red at this point, but because it is, for me, this kind of MAGA lab, right? It's the lab where what has become mainstream in the GOP of trying to, we've talked about this for months, trying to out MAGA Trump, trying to double and triple down on policies that proved very, very effective in winning over the GOP grassroots, and people raise these questions, Your, our co-host, guest co-host a couple weeks ago, Annika Brockschmidt, I think, brought this up really effectively, of people sort of bringing up, well, what would happen if, if you had this as a national policy? We're like, well, look, you'd be Florida. That's the, the dream of the GOP. So we bring it up, and I'm drawn to it because you have somebody in Ron DeSantis who clearly wants to run for president, wants to show that he can be even more of a culture warrior than Trump was and has been on uh, a mission for months since he won uh, re-election in Florida, to show and say, this is what America could look like if we got real MAGA people in political power. So that's that's why it's significant. I think a number of things have happened this week, though, that highlight not just that, that's the story I've been telling, but also elements that might illustrate pushback, possible limits of this, what this could look like. So a few things that have gone on. Everybody knows, we talked about this uh, when it happened that you've had this spat between the DeSantis administration and Disney. Quick recap, years and years ago, decades ago, Disney got this this weird special dispensation from the state of Florida to run their own little community, had to provide fire and police and stuff like that, but basically didn't have state regulation. Don't Say Gay comes out in Florida. Disney, uh, the chairperson of Disney, or CEO rather, kind of reluctantly comes out and says, this is a bad policy. DeSantis administration goes crazy, starts accusing them of being woke and so forth, and says, we're going to take away all those special privileges you have, creates this commission to do that. Disney somehow through mechanisms that nobody seems to be able to explain how the DeSantis administration missed it, just outmaneuvers them and gets his hand-chosen group of people to like give them all their rights back. And then somehow the DeSantis administration finds out and they come back after Disney and nullify that. So last week, I think it was, Disney files a lawsuit against the DeSantis administration. And this brings us to the real thing, saying this is a violation of our First Amendment rights, right? We said we didn't like this policy that came out, and this is retaliation by the state of Florida. Florida has argued, of course, that this is just about business and that they shouldn't have this special privilege or whatever But as we always say, I'm not a legal expert, you're not a legal expert, so we read people who are, and all the legal experts I've read have said, you know what, Disney's on really firm footing here because the DeSantis administration kind of bragged about this forever, like forever they said, this is because they're woke, so we're going to go and we're going to retaliate against them. Why is that significant? One of the things we're starting to see, and I think we're going to see over time, is the unfolding of the pushback on some of these policies in states, and there's a lag. You can do these big, flashy things if you're a governor or some other leader through executive action, if you have a legislature that will kind of give you a blank check to do whatever you want, and there's that lag time of the pushback, but we're beginning to see it, and we're beginning to see that it it seems to have real legs. And in some cases, it's going to work against conservatives, because guess what conservatives argued for a long time? They argued in court and won That Guess what? Corporations count as people, and corporations, that means they have the same rights as people, including speech rights. So this is one thing to sort of watch and see what happens with this over time, because this this issue of free speech, I think, is going to come up in medical, the medical fields. I think it's going to come up in education. I think it's going to come up in businesses. Another one that we've talked about, and this isn't just Florida. We've seen this in Texas. We've seen this in Idaho. Or all of these uh, laws that allow people to challenge books uh, in like school library, public library, school classroom, whatever it is. Well, Illinois just became uh, apparently the first. This is the first law of its kind passed a bill that's going to the governor's desk that would make it illegal to censor or ban books in publicly in public spaces. So libraries schools classrooms that remove books could lose state funding and this is this is really really interesting and this is what the this is what the governor said when the when the bill was first presented reading from a politico article he said uh in Illinois we don't hide from the truth we embrace it and lead with it banning books is a devastating attempt to erase our history and the authentic stories of many and then the the uh newly elected secretary of state who of course is is part of this said that that he couldn't when he when he sort of was running for office he couldn't fathom the book banning was happening in 2023 he said it is so blatant and so dangerous i was blown away we're beginning to see other places that are like okay we we can play this game if you want to try to be the thought police and tell everybody what they can think we are going to protect freedom of speech we're going to uh, protect freedom freedom of information i guess is a way to describe this um and then the Another piece of this is: Is DeSantis flaming out? Um, we've talked about this some. We he went to Washington, didn't win the endorsements that he wanted. He took this big international trip recently, and it ended with a business, uh, sorry, a conference of business leaders in the UK. <laughs> they, they sounded like Trump describing him. They described him as very low energy and not very interested. And in, you know, it didn't go well. He didn't. He didn't put his best foot forward. Polls show that these policies, these radical policies in states like Florida and Texas, they are out of step with most Americans, and this is part of what we're starting to see. We've also seen uh, all of these, the quote-unquote anti-woke policies in Florida. I've read analyses that say that Florida is really worried that their university enrollment is going to drop because of this. That lots of they've done polls of current students, they've done polls of like graduating high school seniors and juniors who say it's something like 10 to 20 percent are not very confident that they're going to stay in Florida because of this. And we've also seen that for DeSantis, despite the fact that he's doing all of this, he's now starting to really lag behind Trump uh, in the GOP. So it's not working. So what's my takeaway from all of this? Why revisit Florida? Number one, I think it is this MAGA lab, and it really, really shows what the GOP wants for America. But I think it's been going on long enough now that we're beginning to see how the rest of America responds to this. And I think that these kinds of trend lines are going to be really, really important as we go into next year and an election cycle and the rest of this year, as we begin to see some of these people try to, we'll go through the primaries, the MAGA candidates will win. They'll have that grassroots support but what will it look like when moderates or the suburban women or the others are having to think about abortion again, or having to think about laws like in Illinois, where they'll protect freedom of speech and freedom of of information. What kind of country do they want to live in? So a lot of things going on there. And I just see it as such a kind of battleground or lab of what's going on nationally. So I've been talking for a long time. I will step away from my Florida desk and let you take the mic. So I, so let's, I want to get to DeSantis flaming out. And I think that's
0: something to talk about. But the first two things you mentioned are really free speech issues, right? So on one hand, we have the Disney case. And, I, you know, I'm not necessarily one who wakes up in the morning thinking, I want to defend the rights of the corporation Disney. Like, that's not something I think usually. However, you're right here in the sense that they seem to have a good case about the the, the First Amendment and them being retaliated against in some in some way for speaking out against a policy. Then there's the book banning. And I really think uh, that we need, and, and this could take so many forms, but I really think that we need a campaign that brings us back to the First Amendment and the freedom of speech. Because the freedom of speech, let me read the First Amendment to everybody. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peaceably uh, assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I think one of the things that's happened, Dan, is we talk about the Second Amendment all the time and, and guns and that whole business. But in the First Amendment, it almost is like Clause 1A. First Amendment A about religion is the one that gets talked about all the time now, that Christians are always arguing, certain kinds of Christians at least, that they need religious freedom so they can deny people who are gay uh, cakes at their bakery so that they can, uh, as football coaches, make their teams pray at the 50-yard line. Hey, that's all religious freedom. Yeah, let, let me have my freedom. And I think what we need is a return to 1B. Hashtag Amendment 1B, because Amendment 1B is the freedom of speech. So when you talk about banning books, okay, you're talking about freedom of speech. Now, there's already so much precedent about pornography right? So that's the first thing your uncle Ron's going to tell you. Whoa, well, you want pornography in the school library? Nope. Talked about pornography a lot in the Supreme Court. That's there, right? That, that can all be looked up. We're talking about the banning of books that express ideas about race, about gender, about history, right? Because you are scared of what it says, okay? Drag queens speaking in libraries. Jon Stewart in that, that infamous interview said this. He's like, if a drag queen wants to read to children, should that be illegal? And the state rep there is like, if from Oklahoma. Is like, yes, and John John Stewart like, "Isn't that freedom of speech?" And the guy says, "Well, the government has a responsibility to protect kids, but it's free speech." Okay, again, we hear a militant defense of guns all the time. Why not have a campaign, one B Amendment One B hashtag Amendment One B that says there is freedom of speech, and that includes books that includes political speech that includes right being someone who dresses any way they want and getting to speak just because you wear certain clothes doesn't mean you don't get to speak and have the freedom of speech in the country so uh, to me this is this is one way if we talk about drawing out the logic and we talk about drawing out the implications in the in the first segment related to texas and ten commandments this is another way to draw out right the logic of what's happening and to battle it and say we have the freedom of speech in this country. That means right, books. That means expression. That means uh, political expression. Uh, that means even if you're a business like Disney a Corporation, who I will not recognize as a person, I don't care what the Supreme Court says. But if you're a business and you come out against the policy, you don't get to just get retaliated against because you're against the policy. That's the freedom of speech, too. So uh, anyway, I want to come back to DeSantis flaming out. You Any more thoughts on the the free speech angles of this
1: whole Thing. Just one. I mean, everything you say is right. And that is the the serious piece of this. I think the flip side of it is, and I've talked about this before, we talk about campaigns I would love to see happen. I would love for people in a concerted effort in these areas that have these, because remember that a lot of these rules now are, if you tell me as a teacher or a librarian that you have a concern with a book, I have to pull it until somebody looks at it and approves it. Right. It's not it's now on a list to be considered or that we put a little star on it or something so people can know that somebody's registered a concern about it. I encourage people then go into the go into your libraries, go into your schools and flag the Bibles and say that you're really you're really upset about that. Be ridiculous. Go into the gardening section and talk about how you're just personally morally upset about, I don't know, the way that they talk about perennials or or whatever, Go into the science fiction section uh, because it's full of all kinds of stuff that isn't like white Christian America stuff or scientific views that are not accurate or whatever, and show how ridiculous this is when they're put in the position of having to close down entire sections of libraries and put those legislators into the position of having to explain why it is that those aren't being removed, but only the things that target queer folk are or only the things that talk about America being too black or too much a nation of culture or a nation with too many indigenous people to start with or whatever, why only those things are targeted. And I think that, again, that brings into view what's really at work here, which is the delimitation of freedom of speech from those we don't want to hear from if we're the white Christian nationalists, Second Kings 223. Then he went up from there to Bethel.
0: And as he was going up, by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. When he looked, this is a hard, is this a hard one for you
1: to hear, Dan? I know. No. Okay. As, as I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at my lack yeah. of hair and thinking, okay. I, I know where this passage goes. I feel yeah. afraid and they should remove it from the library. Yeah, that, that's why
0: I chose it. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Uh, I have a kid. I don't want that kid learning about people getting tore up by bears. That's scary. Get it out of the library. That's what I think you're saying. Um, All right, let's talk about DeSantis. There's a piece at Mother Jones, and this is in in our research link. So if you haven't signed up for a Substack, Dan mentioned it. We have a great uh, team member, Mark Kurth, who is helping us uh, compile all of our research links every week. And uh, he sends those out on, on Thursday night or Friday morning. So if you sign up for our substack, which is in our link tree, you're going to get all these links in your in your inbox. You don't need to go to the show notes. You don't need to worry about it. One of the pieces from this week is is at Mother Jones, and it's about DeSantis flaming out. It's by Dan Freeman. And he says this, uh, in truth, Trump's appeal is or was probably based less on just being an asshole than in getting America's large share of angry, aging, conservative, mostly white people to feel this hassle Asshole is on my side. Now, I, I partly agree. I think he's right. It was more a, a, about just policies and things. I interviewed Jeff Charlotte recently, and what Jeff said there in that interview, and, and I fully agree, is that when he was at Trump rallies in 2016 and 2020, the way that Trump was able to build MAGA Nation was through emotion and incarnation, meaning when you were there, you felt Lust. You felt desire. You felt revenge. You felt uh, resentment, scorn. You felt eroticism. I mean, in a weird way, this magnetism. And Dana, it it makes me feel like I'm a, I'm a really emotional person. I'm like I uh, I cry all the time, and I'm just very sensitive. And I like when I go to movies, or like for me, this is usually at sports games that I care a lot about. Like I'm that person who's yelling, and then like he's like has his hands in his. His head, you know, he's holding his head in his hands because he's like down because we're losing and then I'm yelling again. What's the point is like, I feel stuff so deeply like at a sports game that I really care about or like at a concert, you know what I mean? Or at a movie. That's a lot of what Trump did. In a weird way, the, the billionaire with the gold toilet was able to get these folks to feel all of the, the, I mean, as you always say, to be the id that brought them into their desire, their rage, their lust. Ron DeSantis cannot do that. And what we've said for months is that Ron DeSantis is way better at policy and government than Trump, and he is, the, the Disney case notwithstanding. But what's happening is that he you just can't show up with inhumane policies and think everyone's gonna be drawn to you like they were uh, to Trump. it feels like one of those things where he did an equation, but when he actually got on the ground, right? It's like you're supposed to like someone. You ever have this situation? You're young and everyone's like, hey, I think you'd really like this person. And then they tell that to the other person. And both of you kind of size up the situation and you're like, I think they're right. We're a pretty good match. And then you actually try to talk and there's just no chemistry and it doesn't work. And you're like, it should work. We both like the same things and have the same interests and it doesn't work. There's no chemistry. There's no nothing. Ron DeSantis has that problem. And that's to me, one of the reasons that he can't just create etramaga policies and become president. He's going to have to find a way, if he wants to, to connect with people. And I'm just not sure he can. There's implications here that I don't like, which means that Trump may and looks like he may actually be the nominee in the face of the DeSantis challenge. But anyway, that's, that's down the road. What do you think about all that?
1: I think it's all true. I I talk in my book, right, In Queer Democracy, about how it's it's the sort of visceral emotional level is what I think moves politics and ethics and morality and so forth. And I'm not I'm not an evolutionary psychologist. I'm not somebody who studies emotions like that, but the reality is what what we typically describe as kind of negative emotions, they're really powerful and they feel good as much as it sounds weird, right? We have all known those people in our lives who seem to feel better if they're angry they like like the ironic thing like they're not happy unless they're pissed off about something they're not happy unless they're yelling at somebody they're not happy unless they're unhappy and i think i think there are reasons why those emotions work the way that they do i think there are reasons why they're as powerful as they are and i think you're right that trump has this kind of let's call it a dark charisma you don't want to be around him because i don't know he's an effervescent person who makes you feel good about yourself whatever he just taps into those emotions in a way that lots of other people don't. And we've talked about this for a long time. That's what populist leaders do. They are able to embody that emotion, embody that rage in a way that their followers then sort of link into. And I think you're right. DeSantis doesn't have that. And so what it partly shows is that that cruelty isn't enough because all these MAGA policies are about cruelty. They are about being cruel to those that we don't like or those who scare us or those who we don't think are real Americans or aren't good enough or whatever. It has to also tap into the kind of emotional level that somehow that cruelty really benefits me. And I, I don't know that DeSantis is tapping into that element the way that he does. And that that's what he lacks when he speaks. That's what he lacks when he leaves Florida. That's what uh, he lacks when he goes other places. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch and see how this plays out. The, the last thing I'll say is I think it, to me it says a lot of what we need to say about the contemporary GOP, that the other thing DeSantis lacks right now is indictments. Uh, we have seen the rally around Trump once he's indicted for crimes, and his fundraising goes up, his popularity goes up, his polling goes up. I think that also tells us an awful lot about the state of the contemporary GOP grassroots.
0: Yeah. There's a couple of things related to this that we should just at least mention. Uh, coming up this week, and we'll probably talk about it next week, is a CNN town hall with Donald Trump. And I just want to say something to CNN. Shame on you. Have you learned nothing? It's been almost seven years of this, and you're just putting the man right back on the town hall. He is being indicted for how many things right now? He incited an insurrection, and you've learned nothing. This is as we've talked about fascism and authoritarianism for years now. This is how you enable that. You normalize it. And CNN, I don't, I just don't see any excuse for this. If I'm, if I'm honest, I somebody can write in and try and convince me if you want, but there's also CPAC hungry and CPAC hungry is happening. And uh, Carrie Lake is there, others are there. So we'll get to that. But that's just one more signal that, that CPAC now has a yearly hungry edition. Uh, just shows you the way that they they see Orban as a, an ally and they see him as an exemplar of what they want. So anyway, I, I just wanted to mention those because they are happening and I think they tie in to all this uh, discussion. So, all right, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about the Supreme Court and that whole mess. Be right back. All right, y'all, let's talk about the Supreme Court. So there's been a lot about the Supreme Court. We did talk about Clarence Thomas probably a month ago, but there's been more, and I'm sure some of you have been like, hey, one of these guys is going to talk about that. So today's the day. Here's Philip Bump at WAPO writing this week. On Thursday, ProPublica reported that wealthy investor Harlan Crow paid the private school tuition of Mark Martin, a grandnephew of the Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas, who Thomas has said he's raising as a son. It's not clear how much t- tuition Crow paid, but if you run the numbers... It seems that it would be about $150,000. This comes on top of other reporting from ProPublica that in 2014, uh, Harlan Crow bought properties belonging to Thomas to the tune of more than $133,000. Thomas has been treated to luxury trips by Crow, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, there's more on, on Thomas. So this is also from the Washington Post. Conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo arranged for the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to be paid tens of thousands of dollars for consulting work just over a decade ago, specifying that her name be left off billing paperwork, according to documents revealed by Waho. In January 2012, Leo instructed the GOP pollster Kellyanne Conway, Kellyanne Alternative Facts Conway, to bill a nonprofit group he advises and use that money to pay Jenny Thomas, the documents show. OK, so Leonard Leo, if if that name rings a bell, it should. He's the man that basically, uh, through the Federalist Society, stacked the court over the last generation. If you need a resource on that, Andrew Seidel's new book, American Crusade, will tell you all about it. So go look that up. Now, there's more. Clarence Thomas is not the only justice. Uh, let's talk about Gorsuch. This is from Politico. For nearly two years, beginning in 2015, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch sought a buyer for a 40-acre tract of property. He co-owned in rural Granby, Colorado. Nine days after he was confirmed by the Senate for a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court, he got a note. The chief executive of greenberg Traurig, one of the nation's biggest law firms with a robust practice before the high court, would be buying it. On April 16, 2017, Greenberg's Brian Duffy put under contract the 3,000-square-foot log home on the Colorado River. He and his wife closed on the house a month later, paying $1.8 million. According to a deed in the county record system, Gorsuch made between two hundred and fifty and five hundred thousand dollars on the deal, and this is on sorry, it's coming from his disclosure forms anyway now Greenberg Torg has been involved in at least twenty two cases before presented to the court. okay, so the people that bought the 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 cabin from Gorsuch have had twenty two cases before presented to the court in recent years now. There's been efforts, Dan, to sort of like, hey, should we maybe talk about this? Like, I don't know, Supreme Court, y'all are wilding out. Should we maybe have a little discussion? And that's what Dick Durbin wanted to do. uh, And he invited Chief Roberts to testify early this month about judicial ethics rules and potential reforms. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts declined the invitation and said he didn't want to be there. Uh, now this comes also on the heels and we've talked about this a little bit Dan of Samuel Alito giving a an interview where he basically whines and says he can't believe the persecution that he, they're facing. This is the first time the court's been an object of of scorn and of criticism and that's blatantly not true. Samuel Alito needs to read some history, but Alito's very upset that uh, people would be criticizing the court. So now there are some reforms happening, some other things we'll get into but Let me give you one thought, Dan, to start, okay? The Trump era showed us that so much of our government is built on norms, not laws, and Trump was willing to just trespass all those norms. Talked about that for like five years. The Supreme Court also seems to be a place that works on norms and assumptions that people would just act in an ethical way. And I think there's been this sense for a long time that if you're a Supreme Court justice, you're sort of this, uh, it's like you're in Plato's Republic and you're one of the guardians. And you're separate from society. You've given up all your bodily desires and interests. You're simply a judicial mind that exists in a vat, Uh, occasionally eating some lasagna or a nice continental breakfast. But otherwise, just a judicial mind in a vat. No. And this is not true. I've told this story before. When I lived in DC, I almost got upset with Justice Kennedy because he was picking cantaloupe in front of me at the market. And I was going to tap him on the shoulder and then I saw the security guards. So that's not true. Here's the point. I think we assume that these folks don't have any cares in the world about getting ahead. They just want the best for the country and to decide the right things. And we know that's not true. And it's very clear now that they're susceptible to influence. They're susceptible to uh, favors. They're susceptible to status bumps. And we also know, and again, read Andrew Seidel's book, American Crusade, if you don't believe me, that the court has been stacked over the last generation, that there has been a $1.6 billion effort to get the likes of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett and Roberts on the court. So these are not minds in a vat. And I'll give you one more thought, Dan, and that's this. They're not up for election ever. And I don't know about you, Dan, but sometimes when you don't have to worry about something, and you are under no threat, it's really easy to get complacent. I think we can all imagine scenarios where we, we didn't feel as if something was ever going to be threatened, or we didn't have to kind of like keep up a certain standard. We just assumed it was there the whole time. And we are like, well, we're good. We're not gonna actually do our due diligence. We're not actually gonna right, do our best practice. We're not actually going to hold ourselves to a standard because no one's looking, no one cares, and I don't have to. There's a very human tendency there. And it seems like the Supreme Court, for the first time in a long time, is being looked at and say, and having people say, hey, y'all need to clean up your house. And they're like, how dare you? How dare you come over here and tell me that my house is a mess? How dare you criticize me? I am a Supreme Court justice. And I, I think that's a problem. So anyway, what do you think?
1: I think every, you know, the laundry list you give, the, the sort of summary of this highlights, you know, sort of all of that. And a number of things. So one, yeah, Roberts tried to sidestep it, just be like, no, we're like, we do ethics stuff and it's good. And it didn't convince anybody. Here's the thing. If somebody wants to say, you know what? Oh yeah, you're right. I got this, this monetary thing, but it didn't impact anything. I promise. Okay. You know how you try to prove to somebody that the interests that you have in something don't have an impact? You disclose it. That's what a potential disclosure is for. You disclose it, and then somebody can decide, no, we think that that's a problem, or yeah, we agree. We think that, uh, thank you for disclosing that. We'll keep that in mind. We'll move forward. An analogy people might be familiar with, my partner's a real estate agent. If you go to buy a house, right? Or if you go to buy a car or something like that, you can look up, say, the Carfax report that tells you, like, has it had accidents and stuff? If you're selling a house, you have to fill out a disclosure form that says, here are problems or issues with the house that I know about, so that a buyer can go into it with eyes wide open and say, yep, you shared that, we get it, we're willing to go forward, or nope, sorry, too much of a red flag, whatever. When somebody refuses to do that and only tells you about it because they got caught, I think there's reason to be suspicious, right? And all the Alitos of the world who want to cry and whine and somehow act like, like this is shocking or this shouldn't happen. I think to your point, the point that you you just made, is that I think the people of the Supreme Court have known for a long time that they they view themselves, they are the final arbiters. They are the final arbiters of truth, truth in the sense, judicial, legal, whatever. And I think they frankly revel in the fact that there is nobody above them who can hold them accountable or who can force them to do anything. I think they're also a little terrified about this, this level of scrutiny because I I I would I like to imagine what would happen if a law ever actually was passed to create some sort of oversight of the Supreme Court and then went to the Supreme Court, like <laughs> what that would look like. But the point is, I think all of that's there. And I think it shows that, yeah, they're human like everybody else. They're partisan like everybody else. They want to get ahead like everybody else. I think we can get in the, the sort of masters of the universe way that we think about this and, and trivialize how big these sums of money are, because these people live in a, a realm of, of financial and, and professional reality that most of us will never occupy. But for most of our listeners, for me, for you, half a million dollars is a lot. 130 grand is a lot. I have never in my life been in a position to drop 130 k on a vacation, and these are the kind of things we're talking about. So I think it really shows how sorted it can be, and until and unless the Supreme Court was actually to do the kind of things that they make everybody else do all the time and hold themselves to some sort of standard, a binding enforceable standard, nobody can take the Supreme Court seriously. And from now on, I think politicians may say, yes, we're going to abide by the decision of the court, we're a country of law and order and so forth, but it's always going to come with an asterisk that yeah, it's kind of a foregone conclusion how some of these justices are going to rule on these issues. And we'll find out later that one of their partners got tens of thousands of dollars you know, for contracts that they got, uh, or somebody's tuition was paid for, or somebody made half a million dollars on a real estate transaction so that... They, they got money from somebody who, as you say, presented something like two dozen cases, represented two dozen cases before the court. So on and on. I think it's, it's, if it hasn't been fully discredited, I think it is close and perilously close. And the only thing that's going to fix it is if Roberts were to actually force something through from the court. And I just, I don't see that happening.
0: So here's what we should point out. Ted Cruz got on his podcast yesterday and was like, well, Clarence Thomas took trips. Who else took trips? Ruth Bader Ginsburg took trips. Here's how many. Uh, here's how many uh, other people did. Justice Sotomayor wrote a book and got paid for it. So what do you think about that? Now, I want to get to that in a minute. Here's the difference though, Ted. I know you're a debate champion at Harvard and all that stuff. They disclosed it. They disclosed it. They told us on the form When we tried to buy the house, they were like, hey, yeah, a pipe up there, had a problem with it. Yep, heating system. Two raccoons died in there. Who knows what's going on? Right, they disclosed it. Thomas didn't Gorsuch, right? There's there's emissions there too, right? They did. Thomas, <laughs> the amount of stuff Thomas left off his form, incredible. Here's what the New York Times editorial board says: No member of Congress or the executive branch is permitted to accept a single free cruise or flight without disclosing it lower court judges are subject to gift limits. But Chief Justin, Justice John Roberts has repeatedly said the conference's rules do not apply to the Supreme Court. Why not, John? You work for us. Why not? It remains the least accountable part of our government, as the Watchdog Organization Fix the court has been saying for years. Now, there's new rules being proposed, okay? But they're not very strong. Gabe Roth, executive director of Fix the Court, points out judges are still not required to disclose the dollar amounts of the trips and can wait up to a year to report them. Members of Congress, by contrast, must report all such uh, trips in within a month. Okay. A better solution, and this is introduced by Senator Whitehouse, Sheldon Whitehouse, chairman of the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Court Subcommittee would require the court to adopt a code of conduct with disclosure rules that are at least as rigorous as those imposed on members of Congress. There should be recusal rules. I I mean, I could read on and on and on. But there are ways this could be reformed. But to this point, Roberts and Alito and others have scoffed at this. And I just say, if you want the court to be legitimate in a time when many are doubting uh, its status, then do this. You're not immune. You're not somebody who just gets to do whatever they want. You are accountable to the people, even if you're not up for re-election, and so uh, that seems really important. Um, real quick, Dan, before we have to uh,
1: we have to go, what about uh, the Proud Boys? What's going on with them? I'll throw this in just for for good measure this week. So the Proud Boys, uh, this just happened yesterday. Um, Brad, you emailed me about it, and I was like, "What about the Proud Boys?" And I hadn't had a chance to like look at the news in a couple hours. I was like, "Oh, there it is." Uh, Five uh, Proud Boy members were found guilty of crimes related to January 6th. Um, And the really big part of this is that four of them, uh, including uh, uh, Enrique Tarrio, who was the leader of the Proud Boys, were convicted of seditious conspiracy. It's a really big deal. That's a a rare charge, not often brought forward, not often finding conviction. It is typically reserved for domestic terrorists. I'm just going to throw that out there for all the people that want to say, like, It was just a tour of the Capitol. It was the same as other, apparently not. Apparently, a jury of their peers felt that it was equivalent to domestic terrorism. They could face decades in prison. We won't know for a a long time. A couple takeaways from this. One of the things that I've been really glad about watching now these prosecutions unfold, and I, I think Merrick Garland noted something like more than 600 successful prosecutions of J6 perpetrators at this point. And that ranges everything from like somebody who gets probation to like, I think the longest sentence so far is 10 years in prison, but that the, oh, it was just talk. Defense has not worked, right? Because this on a big scale has worked the way that we've talked about this before, the way that like somebody will make like a sexist comment or like a racist joke or something and you call it like, oh, it's just a joke. You're being oversensitive. Of course, that's not really what I think. And it was kind of the same thing. People were like, oh, we were just talking on social media or I was just wrapped up in the moment or I was just making a selfie or all of these vitriolic racist things that I said and, and all the language of revolution and firing squads and hanging people that was just talk. I've been relieved, I think, and affirmed to see that those, those defenses haven't worked uh, for the most part. But another takeaway from this, uh, I was reading reading a transcript of an interview on NPR uh, with Cynthia Miller-Idris, who yeah. runs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University. So somebody who studies American radicalization and so forth, and she's made the point that I I, th- I think is true. But she's an expert, so I, she thinks it's true that none of this puts the genie back in the bottle on on American political violence. That that all of everything that happened on J six, the lead up to it. And sense has normalized political violence in America in a way that it was not before, and so I think there there can also be those that are hoping that this will some you know be a panacea that will somehow sort of fix that in American politics. And I think it's here to stay, but yeah. So that was that was the a really really big probably the biggest most watched court case related to J six the perpetrators of J six to date. So yeah, five Proud Boys found guilty four of seditious conspiracy. And just for the record, Cynthia Miller-Edris is is just a
0: top-notch expert on this stuff. So anything that you see from her, she posted her interview on Twitter. And if you all follow her, go find it. Uh, it's worth it's worth it. Um, this is my good news for, this is my reason for hope this week, is that they were convicted. And I think it is a big deal, as you said. This is, as you say, basically labeling them or putting them in the category of domestic terrorists. So this is a really good news. And it also illustrates why the May 10th town hall CNN with Donald Trump is really bad news because he incited a thing that these folks have now been convicted of uh, for seditious conspiracy. He incited insurrection. He incited a seditious conspiracy. He was part of it. And yet you're going to put him on the TV while these guys go to jail for five, 10, 20 years. So this is my reason for hope, but as always, it illustrates and brings into relief what is wrong with the way that J6
1: has been adjudicated in our public square. So, all right. What's your reason for hope, Dan? Just Briefly on that point about Trump, even the Proud Boys know this, right? In their trial, they they said Trump, lots of people have tried. They said we did this because of Trump. So just throw that out there. My reason for hope is the WHO declared that COVID-19 is no longer a public health emergency of international concern. That's a technical definition. They first declared COVID, this international public health emergency, in January of 2020. I think, I I don't mean to trivialize the fact that people still deal with COVID, that people have different reactions and experiences of it. It was significant on a local level. I was hopeful that I live in Massachusetts, Northampton pride events are taking place this weekend. It's the first time in four years that they've done these in person. And so I was, I was, I took great hope in that, that while the pandemic's not sort of fully in the rearview mirror and it doesn't mean things are gone. And I think we're going to have to take vaccine boosters probably forever. It's going to become like the flu shot and politicized and on and on and on i think it's very hopeful to think where we've come in the last 3 years yeah totally all right friends listen to our new series one nation all
0: beliefs and that's the first episode's on our feed and uh, the rest are on its own feed just search for one nation all beliefs sign up for our substack we send out all the research that we do every week through the substack and finally just want to give a shout out to folks who are a part of our team that have been helping us emma holbert helps with research assistance uh, Isaiah Perkins uh, designed our merch and and also provides some production assistance. At times, Mark Kurth is the one behind that newsletter I just talked about and helps us really compile that every week. And uh, Micah Celadon has been helping us with our YouTube channel. And that's a good way to say, go subscribe to our YouTube channel. Dan, we have like 990 subscribers. If we get to 1,000, I guess that means something on YouTube. I don't know. I'm old and YouTube scares me. But I would really love it if we got to a thousand subscribers. So uh, if we can get there, that'd be great, friends. Other than that, look us up on social media, Straight White JC on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we'll be back next week with a great interview, and it's in the code. But for now, we'll say thanks for being here. Have a good day. Thanks, Brad.